Amen. You may be seated. And as you're grabbing your seats, you can grab your Bibles as well, and you can open them up to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 1. Chapter 1. And uh, no, we're not going to start all over again from the beginning and slowly work our way through. But I need to warn you, this is a different kind of message this morning. Um, It's not going to be what we would typically do. We're jumping back into the book of Romans. And I don't know about you if you've ever maybe started a book or maybe started a movie and then for some reason stopped that and then tried to jump back into the story of that, that book or that movie maybe months later and only to have maybe lost a sense of the context, a sense of what's going on and why we're, we are where we are. I think in some sense that can happen to us even when it comes to the Bible. And as familiar as you are with the Bible, it's always good to back up and to gather the context so we get the content of the Scriptures right. A context is so critical to understanding what the Word of God is saying to us. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, We're going to back up. And for some of you, you've been here for the last year, our last ministry year, and you went through the first eight chapters of the book of Romans with us. We've pulled it apart, we've dissected it, and we've gotten pretty deep into the Word of God. Um, Others of you, you're brand new. And maybe you've just started attending over the summer or maybe the tail end of last year. And so you weren't with us throughout much or any of the book of Romans. So for you, this is going to be incredibly important to kind of get up to speed with where the Apostle Paul has been taking us on this journey through his letter to the Romans. I simply want to give an overview of Romans 1 through 8 this morning. I want to drop into certain parts of the book, but I want to break it down really into four buckets that I think will make it easy for us to navigate the thought pattern and the argument of the Apostle Paul that he's making in this letter. And then what we're going to do is, at the end of the message, I'm going to set up where we're going in this next half of the book of Romans throughout the rest of this ministry year. The first section here really speaks to Paul's main objective. It's like he gives us his thesis or his introduction to the entirety of his letter. He's telling us why he's writing this letter. So first in this introduction, he gives us the gospel potency. He wants us to have a firm grasp of the potency of the gospel, the the, the power of the gospel, how rich it is, how important it is, its priority, not just in our life, but for all of humanity. And so he begins his letter the way you might expect, by introducing himself and giving you a sense of who he is. He says this in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart, notice how he says this, for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh. And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome, here's now the audience, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He says in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. What Paul does first is he sets up his authority. He wants us to know that this letter is not coming simply from himself, but it is actually a message that is coming directly from God. The message he bears is the good news, the gospel of God. It pertains the things of God. It is related to the Son of God, and it is all for you. But he begins by describing himself. He's a servant of God, but more than that, he's an apostle. He has been given a unique role in redemptive history. An apostle, capital A apostle, was a specific role in the first century church, the early church. They had a delegated authority by God. They were sent by God to declare the message of God. And now, the important thing here is that when Paul sets this up, he does so for a specific reason. He doesn't often mention his credentials, but it's important in this setting because the people he is writing to don't actually know him personally. Paul didn't plant the churches that are in Rome. They had come there some other way by some other individuals. Paul has not yet been to Rome. That's kind of his hope and desire. He wants to get to Rome. And so these churches have no real true connection to the Apostle Paul, not personally speaking. So he wants to make sure they understand who he is, why he writes, and the authority with which he writes. And so it's important that when we read this letter, we understand that what we're getting here is a message directly from God. But we see also that he moves from his authority to show us his heart. Look at verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Just notice his heart for the gospel. And notice how his heart for the gospel gives him a heart for, for people. He loves the gospel because of what it is and what it means, and he loves people so much that he wants to get them this message of the gospel. This is his heart for those in the church in Rome. It's his heart for those in the world. And, and as you, you, you see his heart, this is why it's so important, because, listen, Romans, the book of Romans has often been kind of touted as a theological masterpiece. And people throughout the centuries have recognized how critical the, the theology and the depth and the profundity of this letter is for the Christian faith. I mean, so much so that, that it's, been, it's been the topic of much debate. It's been the topic of, of many arguments and discussions around important topics of theology. But as rich and profound as it is in terms of its theology, this book was actually written not to stir primarily academic interest or debate. Did you notice what he says here? This book was written to strengthen Christians. It was written to strengthen people like you and me, to enable us and strengthen us to, to walk and, and to live the ordinary Christian life, to know, to love, and to worship God. That's why he's written this letter. 
And so you just need to, to hear this right out the, the gates again. There is a strong pastoral tone to this letter. He writes to help the church walk in the grace of the gospel. And that's why he shows us next what exactly his gospel entails. He shows us his gospel. And, and verses 16 and 17, this is where we got our ministry year theme from last year. It is really the thesis of this letter. It is the heart and soul of this letter. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He's not ashamed of the gospel. He loves the gospel. And his supreme objective in this letter is that we understand and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ the good news from God. So, what exactly is the good news? The good news of the gospel, as he said it here, is that there is no greater power and there is no greater promise that is given from God to men. The gospel is the power. It is the singular greatest power in all the universe. It is the power of God. It is supreme. It is the very power of God Himself. It is a saving power. Did you notice that? He says it is the power of God for salvation. And it is the sufficient power. It is to everyone who believes. This is the power of the gospel. And the great promise of the gospel is that you receive the very righteousness of God. You cannot understand the gospel unless you understand this term here, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. What exactly is the righteousness of God? Is it the, the moral purity or character of God? No, not, not exactly, although there is that kind of righteousness in God. It is, a, is it a righteousness that God expects from us that we can somehow earn or accomplish based on our own merit or obedience to the law? No, nope, that's not what he's talking about here. This is the very righteousness that is given to us from God, a righteousness that we could never earn, a righteousness that we could never accomplish. It is the pure and perfect gift of righteousness that comes only through faith, as he says here. Faith in Jesus Christ. So when he gives us his introduction here, what he's doing is he's, he's trying to fire you up with the gospel. You know, all this gospel language, and as he proclaims here that he's not ashamed of the gospel, there's kind of this powerful punctuation of the gospel. And if you are a Christian here today and you breathe this in, it's like he's giving you literally a spiritual energy drink and not one of those cheap Canadian ones with half the caffeine. I'm talking about like an American energy drink. Double the caffeine, quadruple espresso shot. He's firing the gospel into your veins and he's showing you, listen, that it is the very power that you need for your salvation and for all of your life. This is what you need, he's saying. This is what you desperately need. He's rallying us again. And listen, some of, we need this. Do you need to be refreshed in this? He's rallying his readers both then and now 
to know, to believe, and then therefore to proclaim the gospel of God. Now he begins to expound the gospel. That's what the book of Romans is. You just think of, like, what exactly is Paul doing? He is expounding and explaining and unpacking the depths and beauty and majesty of the gospel. And so here's where he begins. He gives us the gospel prerequisite. Let me say it another way. He, he talks about our gospel need. In other words, there, there, is, there is a need that needs to be understood in order for us to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we know this is this, and this is what he's going to lay out, is that you can't actually receive the good news until you understand the bad news. And so he begins talking about sin. He talks about the the nature of sin, the reality of sin, and it's interesting because, remember, he's writing primarily to Christians. He's writing to churches. So, you can kind of think of this next section in, in, in 1 verse 18 all the way through 320 as Paul evangelizing Christians again. He's making them rehearse and review the gospel. He wants them to remember just how dead they were, spiritually speaking, in their sin, how needy they were, how desperate they were, and why, therefore, the gospel is such good news. And we get this, right? Sometimes, even in the Christian life, um, we get a little bit complacent. And and the gospel, if we're honest, it sometimes loses a bit of its wonder, its intrigue, and the amazement in our own lives. It's kind of like, you know, living in a first world country like this. We get very used to the way things are. I mean, indoor plumbing, clean water to drink, air conditioning, electricity, and all you need to do to begin to appreciate those things in a fresh way is go to a third world country. Just go for a couple, just go for a couple days. And you come back, and all of a sudden, those things that you were so used to, those things that were just so normal in your life, you're kind of like, this is amazing what we have. It's kind of what Paul's doing here with the gospel. He's taking us back, so to speak, to the the third world country of our sin. Because he wants us to appreciate the, the first world privileges of the gospel. And so he dives in, you'll notice right in verse 18, and he talks about the reality for all humanity, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And listen to what he says about them, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What do you mean by that, Paul? For what can be known about God is plain to them, he says, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Then listen to these words. This is, this, is, this is so critical to see. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged worship of the Creator for created things. I mean, this is so much embedded in human nature 
that, that God simply gives them over to it. They, they, they see the truth of God. They suppress the truth of God. And so God gave them over to their dishonorable passion, passions. And sin, he describes here in the rest of chapter 1, is just this spiraling out of control, spiraling away from God. And he refers to how everybody can know God. And it's, it's important to see first what he's doing is he's speaking to the Gentile world, non-Jews. It's often been said there's two books that God has given us that reveal himself to us. There's the book of the Word, which is the Bible, his, his revelation, his scriptures, and there's the book of the world, creation. And Paul here refers to the book of the world, and he says that everybody in all the world has been given the world as a book. And if they look around, they can read this book and see that not only is God real, but that God is a God of eternal power. He's the God who's created everything. This is also what theologians call God's common grace. There's nobody in the world who doesn't have access to God's creation, and so therefore all of created beings, human beings, they're without an excuse. The problem with humanity, the universal response to God's revelation is this, that they suppress the truth. Mankind actively, this isn't a passive reality, the, the verb Paul uses and the word he chooses is this word suppression, and you can kind of have in your mind this active pushing down against a giant coil. It's powerful, it's strong, but, but humanity pushes down on this coil and tries to suppress it. And all the while, the more they push on it, that coil's actually pushing back with great force against their conscience. The harder they push, the more they know and the more they understand that there is a God. And one day that coil will be released and spring back right in their face and they will be held accountable without excuse. God has not hidden himself from humanity, but he's made himself plainly and painfully obvious. Which is why, by the way, Psalm 14, one can say this in what sounds so harsh, but is so true, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Only the fool can say that. And as he begins to kind of unfold the sin in the next section of chapter 1, he talks about the, the foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless people, the inventors of evil, they're haters of God, they're insolent, they're haughty, they're, they're boastful. He's just simply describing humanity apart from God. And here's the kicker. Though they know God's righteousness, verse 32, His righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And at this point, the Jews, by the way, that the church in Rome was made up of a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. At this point, all the Jews are like, yeah, Paul, you go get those Gentiles. You put them in their place, Paul, that's right. They're guilty. I mean, they're without an excuse. They're condemned. Look how wicked and sinful they are. And then Paul turns the tables on them and says, oh, yeah, let's talk about you for a minute. And in chapter 2, he goes after the Jews. 
He turns to them and he says, now hold on a second, you who are privileged to have both the book of the world and the book of the word. And he begins to unfold for them their own sinfulness. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. He looks at these, these Jews. He says, don't you understand? You had the Word. You, you who had the Bible were just as bad as those who didn't. In fact, they thought they were so privileged. Look at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, look at verse 19. This is unbelievable. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You're, you're not any better. In fact, you're making the Gentile world laugh at not only you, but your God because of the way you sin just like they do. And in fact, what he's pointing out to them is this, you're actually more culpable. You're more accountable. You had more knowledge. You had more truth that was given to you. And so you are more accountable. This is why, by the way, Jesus went after the Pharisees the way he did. And there's a lesson here, by the way, for all of us who are sitting under the truth, even this morning. It's possible to be so close to God and yet so far. And there's a warning here, too, for all of us especially some of you Christians in here, listen, don't confuse having accurate information about God with having a genuine relationship with God. His point is, is so simple. All humanity is guilty before God. That's his point. All humanity is in sin, and he summarizes it in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, with blistering citations from the Old Testament. In other words, they should have seen this, they should have known this, this is nothing new. Everybody, in verse 9, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Here it is. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified 
in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The Jews misunderstood the purpose of the law. They couldn't earn their righteousness. They never could. The law simply revealed that they too were sinners like the Gentiles. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin, and it points out, listen, that humanity, all of humanity is equal in two primary ways, two specific ways. First, all of humanity is guilty before God. And secondly, all of humanity is powerless to do anything about it. We're all guilty, and we are all powerless to do anything about it. We are all deserving of His wrath because we've failed to worship Him, to give thanks to Him. And the kicker is that you have no hope, no hope of being righteous because you have no power to change yourself. None. Trying to change yourself and make yourself right with God, it's, it's the equivalent of at yelling at a drowning man to simply swim. And yet, what we see, what he lays out for us next is that your great problem, because of this gospel prerequisite, is met by God's great gospel provision. It's the third point. The gospel prerequisite leads us directly into the gospel provision. If we grasp this reality that we're all sinners, then we can grasp, listen, the necessity of God's saving work. Everything, in other words, that a sinner needs is supplied in the gospel. And the two greatest words in Scripture, they're so often followed by the most horrific words in Scripture, are found right here in verse 21. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You have no righteousness of your own. You never could. But now God has revealed His righteousness for you through His own Son. All of His righteousness, all, all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that's what He has revealed to you. That's what the, the law and the prophets pointed to. That they were pointing towards someone who could fulfill all righteousness with a life that was perfectly obedient to every single aspect of the law of God, both practically speaking, morally speaking, and listen, most importantly, from the heart, motivationally speaking, here is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the very Son of God. God in flesh alone could meet the demands of the law. God alone could be righteous. And the righteousness that is available to sinners is this perfect life that he lived. His full obedience to God. This is the only righteousness that was ever sufficient before God. It is a righteousness that conquers sin and death. It is a righteousness that overcame the grave. 
And as a result, if you have this righteousness, if you are gifted this righteousness, you are justified, the Scripture says. And and justification, again, only as a gift. Let me just kind of define terms for us. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be righteous before God. Let me give you a very simple definition of being justified. It's just as if you've never sinned and just as if you've always obeyed. Okay, so instead of standing before God with all of your sin and all of your unrighteousness, when God looks at you, if you're a Christian, He looks at you through the lens of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ now gives you everything you need so that when God sees you, He sees you as He sees His own Son, Jesus Christ. He sees you as someone who has never sinned, someone who has always obeyed because you have that righteousness of the one one and only one who could ever do that for you. It is a gift. Please see that here. This is grace. So many, this is the differentiator between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Every other religion says you can somehow earn it. You can somehow do it. You can somehow accomplish it. Every single one. It boils down to two different ways of salvation. There's only two paths. And there's only one narrow road. It's human achievement on one side or it's a divine accomplishment on the other. And here he tells us that God has accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves, which is why, by the way, we are declared justified. We don't earn justification. And this is so important. John Calvin said this. He said, justification by faith is the hinge on which all true religion turns. You strip this out of the Christian faith and you don't have Christianity. Why? Because if it depended on works, it would be totally unobtainable. It wouldn't be possible. It's so vital to grasp this doctrine. It's, listen, it's at, it's at the heart of this passage. It's at the heart of this book. It's at the heart of all the Scriptures. Justification by faith has always been the only way to God. And Martin Luther, the great reformer, he, he once said this to his congregation. He said, I have preached justification by faith so often, I feel sometimes that you are so slow to receive it that I could almost take the Bible and bang it about your heads. And I won't do that this morning, but you get his point. You say, why, why would he say that? Listen, because the human default, guess what the human default is? I can, I can do it. I hear, I hear grace, I hear gift, but you know what? Something in self-righteousness, pride, in me, says, I have to do it. I have to make something of myself. I have to be something important. But at the end of the day, if it can be all about you, then you have something to boast in, and the Scriptures make it very clear. For all of eternity, all the redeemed will boast only in one thing, and that is the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. It will never be about anything you've ever done, ever, It will only and always be about what Jesus has done for you. So we need to hear it again and again. It's the great motivation for our own obedience. And in chapter 4, he goes into the great example of Abraham. And again, this is so perfect because he says, look at even the father of faith, Abraham himself, he didn't earn it. And by the way, he was saved when he was a Gentile. He wasn't even a Jew. Chapter 4, verse 15 says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, talking about Abraham, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He points to Abraham, and he holds forth this example of faith and trust in God, and we know what the Scriptures say, that Abraham was justified by faith. His, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And as a result, we get to now enjoy all of the benefits of that faith, the ongoing results of faith. What you need to see here is he, he's saying that faith is a past event. Our, our justification is a past event with ongoing results in our life. And that's what he begins to talk about in chapter 5. He says in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. We, we have been given peace, and we now continue to experience peace with God. His wrath is removed from us. We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We stand in His grace. We don't stand under His wrath. On your best days and your worst days, if you are in Christ, you stand in His grace accepted and loved by Him. And this God doesn't think little of sin. He doesn't just wink at sin or sweep sin under the rug. He doesn't just forgive sin as if He can just kind of, kind of blink and say, it's just forgiven. No. Because He is holy and righteous, He must punish sin. And chapter 5 walks through how in order to do that, He had to send His own Son as a lamb, as a, as a sacrifice for sin, as a substitute. He sent His own righteous Son to the cross to bear our sin, to make propitiation, that is, to make full payment, to assuage the very wrath of God. And that's what the cross was. It was Jesus receiving what we deserve for our sin. It is Jesus making full and final payment. Look at verse 6 of chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we have been made right with God. And so the natural question that comes out of this, if we've received this grace, if God has forgiven all of our sin, past, present, and future, well then, can we continue to sin so that grace may abound? That's chapter 6. That's verse 1. We just keep on sinning because the more we sin, the more we get to see God's grace, and the more we can praise Him, right? Isn't that the way this works? And his answer in chapter 2, right church, we know this, by no means, may it never be. Why? How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
And then he relates it to baptism, to being baptized with Christ, spiritually speaking. And he's talking here about our union with Christ. He says, don't you understand? You died with Christ. When he died for you, you died with him. Your old life is gone. You've been now changed and transformed. And when, when Jesus rose from the grave victorious over sin and death, you were set free from sin and death. You were given resurrection, life, and power. It's not that a Christian shouldn't live in sin. Listen, this is important. It's that a Christian can't live in sin anymore. We can't do it. It can no longer be the pattern and trajectory of our lives. It can no longer be the defining reality of who we are. We are set free from that. We're given a new identity as children of God. And then he goes on to tell us how we ought to think of this. Verses 12 through 14, he says, therefore, excuse me, that's wrong pastor. Let sin not, therefore not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. See that? You can't do, don't do it. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And then he goes on to tell us that we're under grace and that we're not to continue sinning. In fact, we're to consider ourselves, though free from sin, slaves to righteousness. And he presses into us the call to holiness. Does that mean that we never sin? No, of course not. We continue to sin every day, but our relationship to sin is different. The patterns of our life are different. We begin to look different because we are different. And with this great gospel provision comes finally, listen, great gospel privilege. Chapter 7 begins by describing the believer's new relationship to the law. It's all this talk about law in this book and righteousness, and we're set free from the law. Well, how do we then look at the law and think about the law? He says that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And he uses this analogy of marriage because he's trying to help us understand that, that the, the law was a part of a covenant for the people of God, the Old Testament people of God. They were in this Mosaic covenant, and now they've died, and so they're not bound to this Old Covenant partner any longer. We're freed from the law. And in effect, spiritually speaking, metaphorically, we're married to Christ. So he describes our relationship with the law like a divorce. We're no longer under that covenant. We, we're still, listen, to obey commands, but that covenant, the covenant that constantly condemned us, that made us aware of our inability to meet the perfect expectations of the law, it's no longer in effect for us. That law only produced death, Paul says in verse 5 and 6. But you see, while the penalty and power of sin is broken, the presence of sin still remains. And in verse 7, he tells us, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. He tells us, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said it. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. 
For apart from the law, sin lies dead. You see, we need the law. The law continues to show us our sin and our absolute inability. And when the commandments of God come to us, the rest of Romans 7 says this, there is a battle that is being waged, a battle between our sinful flesh and our our new spiritual life in the Spirit. The Spirit and the flesh go to battle against one another, and we in Christ have the power to overcome the sinful flesh, though we often fail. So he concludes chapter 7 by saying in verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Listen to how the Spirit operates in our life, though. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, that is my flesh, another law waging war against the mind, uh, the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, and with my flesh I serve the law. And now he launches into chapter 8 what life in the Spirit looks like. Yes, there's a real battle. Yes, there is a war going on within us. But in chapter 8, perhaps the high watermark of this entire letter, maybe even of the entire Bible, Paul unveils to us the privilege of having the Holy Spirit living within us, giving us a new heart with new passions and new desires, reminding us that we are in Christ, and therefore, even though we struggle and fall, there is now, therefore, chapter 8, verse 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And he goes on to unfold the beauty of the gospel, but in this great chapter, he drives into our hearts the reality of the Spirit of God. Our lives are driven by the Spirit who provides ongoing sanctification and the hope of eternal security. In this passage, we see in verse 10 that the Holy Spirit is our life. In verse 14, He leads us. The Holy Spirit speaks to us in our inner being, verse 16. He groans within us for for our, our recreation, the recreation of our body and essentially the cosmos. He intercedes for us, verse 26. He has secured us. And the greatest statement of all coming at the end of this chapter, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Listen, no matter what the world throws at you for loving Jesus Christ and following Jesus Christ, look at verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's it. Nothing much, right? That's where we've been. We've gone through it in a lot more detail. But that's the flyover of this section of Scripture. And and I just want to end just a few minutes here and give you three quick applications. I want to give you a theological application. I want to give you a pastoral application. And I want to give you a missional application. The first application from this first half of the book is theological. and, And it's simply this. Paul wants you to know your God and to know your gospel. 
He wants you to know the gospel of Jesus Christ inside and out. He, he is not content with us having just a, a small understanding of the gospel. I mean, what we just went through, we went through so quick, but it's so rich. Here's what he wants you to see. The gospel itself, it's so rich, it's so deep, it's so profound, and, and it utterly, the more you understand it, listen, the more it has power to transform and change your life. And so he's telling us, like, don't let off the pedal when it comes to knowing the gospel of God and the God of the gospel. The gospel is, is yes, in, in one sense, in seed form very basic. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, lived a righteous life. He died in the place of sinners. He rose from the grave victorious over sin and death, and he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. That's the gospel in seed form. And if you believe in that message, if you declare Jesus as Lord and Savior, you shall be saved. If you bow to him right now, you shall be saved. But oh, is the gospel so, so, so much more deep than that. In expanded form, as we've just seen, it includes the doctrine of sin and salvation, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, substitutionary atonement, propitiation, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, freedom from sin, union with Christ, war with sin, eternal security, and full assurance, and so, 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 so much more. The gospel is better than you can ever imagine. You will never plumb the depths of it this side of heaven. And the more we know it, the more it increases our wonder and our worship of the God who is deserving of it all. And our hearts, listen, the more you understand the gospel, the, our hearts, don't they church, our hearts cry, who is like our God? Second pastoral application, this book is about unity in the church. Did you notice that? That this book is about two people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, and how they are one and the same in Christ Jesus. That there is no distinction and what a fitting message for us today. I know we're not fighting over, you know, Jews and Gentiles and distinctions in the church, but it's so important to see, and, and this book is reminding us how the gospel unites all of us from all walks of life, from diverse backgrounds, and even from past belief systems. It flattens all of humanity out. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are saved by the same gospel and united by the same Savior into the same body. And He wants us to be unified. Listen, He wants us to be focused on unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And He wants us to fight for that unity more than anything. Lastly, a missional application. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Everyone. It is the only message that saves. And in this letter, Paul is recruiting the churches in Rome. He is enlisting their support for the advancement of the gospel. He wants them to see, listen, I am devoted to the gospel, and I want you alongside me in this. I want your prayer. I want your contributions. I want your efforts. I want your talents and your abilities. I want your gifts all being used and channeled towards one great end, and that is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And I hope your heart, listen, if you know the gospel and love the gospel, I hope your heart, listen, deep down, you, it, just, it, it just pours out of you. You have a heart to see people come to know Jesus Christ. You want this church invested in missions, work, and activity, but you yourself, if you looked at your life, you would see that you are a person who is concerned about and oftentimes consumed with proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ because you know, you know, you know, there is no other name under heaven by which 
anyone can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. And there are people who have never heard the name of Jesus, who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus, and it means this church, there's work to be done. Amen? This is a call for us to keep moving, to keep pressing on. And here's where we're going in the last half of the book. Just really quickly, I'll throw the slide up on the screen here. The ministry year theme is this, growing deeper. And here's why, because in chapters 9 through 11, we're growing deeper in our thinking. Paul is now going to get into some really complex and profound issues related to the gospel that are going to be important for us to to dig into, to understand, to untie. It's going to be really, really important. And then in chapters 12 through 16, here's what we see. We see the call to be growing deeper in our Christian living. Christian thinking, Christian living, we're growing deeper together. Amen, church? Let's pray.